Hello and welcome to Parkinson's Pathway Pals, Tuesdays with Teresa. I'm Teresa Jackson, your podcast host. Today my guest is Dr. Jonathan Lesson. Dr. Jonathan Lesson is a former cardiac anesthesiologist whose career was cut short nine years after the diagnosis of young onset Parkinson's disease. Initially, he was able to keep working with medication and eventually deep brain stimulation. After John voluntarily retired, he found rock climbing as a form of exercise to further aid him in his struggle with the disease. Ultimately, John helped to form a PD rock climbing group at Sport Rock Climbing Center in Alexandria, Virginia, and he has also authored a book about his experience with Parkinson's, with deep brain stimulation, and with different forms of exercise. I have that book on my desk, John, and I just finished reading it. It's called Tenacity, so welcome, Dr. Lesson. Thank you. Yeah, I'd like to start out, if it's okay with you, talk a little bit around your diagnosis. I read in the book, you said, I was relieved when I was diagnosed. I knew I would be able to live a full life. Um, You know, that's a really important message because when someone's diagnosed, they generally do not have information and they're not even provided a lot of information or education at the time of diagnosis. So they don't know a lot about the disease and it's pretty frightening. Can you take me through that time? Yes. Well, I was, as a lot of us are, I was misdiagnosed at first with multiple sclerosis. I decided I was going to become the expert in multiple sclerosis that weekend and find out if I had it or not. Um, there, I found out there was five tests for multiple sclerosis that you could that you could do. One was MRI of the brain, which I did, which was negative. The other one was an eye exam, looking for looking for a loss of myelin in your in your eye, and that was also negative. Then I was, SSCPs and visual evoke responses were normal. So the only thing that I had left to do was a spinal tap, which I didn't want to do. Yeah, that's pretty aggressive. So I knew something was wrong with me. And the reason I say that I was relieved at the time was because my neurologist at the time was actually my friend. And he had seen me for for months, and he knew something was wrong with me, too. And when he told me that it was Parkinson's disease, I knew that it was treatable. I knew that we had a diagnosis to work with. Yeah. Yeah, I like I said, I think that's so important because I think people don't know that much about Parkinson's. And we're going to talk a little bit more about medical school and what's taught in medical school here in just a little bit. But I think for people to hear that you can live well with Parkinson's is probably a relief for a lot of people. And I'm sure that your diagnosis took long, a lot of people's diagnosis actually, from what I'm hearing and reading, uh, can take quite some time. Mine was actually fairly quick. But for someone as young as you were at the time, for young onset Parkinson's disease, it can be quite a lengthy, lengthy process. How old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 38 years old. 38 years old. That's really young. And and just getting started in your career, really. Right. I worked, I worked for 19 years total. After um, your diagnosis or all b- before and after? Before and after. Gotcha. I, I worked for nine years before. All right. Well, um, I read in your book also that 
you said you had a healthy sense of denial, which served as a great defense mechanism. And I understand that since I was diagnosed also with Parkinson's in 2019, I had a very healthy dose of denial. And I was convinced that I had a nutritional deficit and that the neurologist was surely wrong. Um, and I was 55 at the time of diagnosis, so I can only imagine at the age of 38 um, the denial of, you know, the disease itself and how it will impact and that it's progressive must have um, been part of your process. Yes, I was seeking a second opinion because I didn't believe that I had Parkinson's disease at age 38. Yeah. And this, I knew there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Yeah. And yeah. so I went through the stages of Kuleras with denial mm -hmm. as, as a big stage. And once they gave me the L-Dopa and it actually worked, I was not able to use denial anymore. Right. Yeah, it's amazing how when that kicks in, uh, life looks a little different, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So we touched briefly about medical school, and I read also in your book, you said, you know, that you wish that you had learned more about PD in medical school, and that you thought you had about one day, and the truth of that really is that um, that's kind of the way it is. I After I was diagnosed, I've been in the medical industry, in the medical field for 35 years, not as a physician, but in various uh, capacities, and I had a number of primary care friends nurses and doctors, um, physician assistants, nurse practitioners reach out to me and ask, you know, what should they be looking for um, in, in their population because they had had so little training in their own schooling. And so I guess I would like to hear, you know, maybe you can share with our listeners if they have something wrong or are concerned about something and they're having trouble being diagnosed when they go to see their primary care physician, how can they help their primary care diagnose them earlier? What are the things that the primary care physician should be looking for? Well, the most sensitive symptom is actually constipation. But it's actually the least specific because a lot of people have constipation that don't eventually get Parkinson's disease. Mm-hmm. We don't actually get diagnosed until we have motor symptoms. We have lots of non-motor symptoms. Alan Oliver said that he had REM sleep disorder before he was diagnosed. That was the first symptom where he acted out of his dreams. Um, and slowness of movement, rigidity, bradykinesia, freezing, those are all symptoms of Parkinson's disease that go along with the tremor. The tremor is the most commonly known symptom of Parkinson's disease, but it's not the most common symptom at all. Right. Pressing tremor. I know for me, um, tremor was not what took me to the doctor. What took me to the doctor was um, I had difficulty putting change back in my wallet. So if I gave a cashier a 20 and she gave me some change back, it just took me forever to get the change back into my wallet. And I also had trouble running downstairs. So that's actually what initially took me. Uh, my daughter, though, noticed my tremor first, and she was actually the first one that noticed any symptom. And so 
I know they it manifests itself different and looks different in different patients. Um, so I do want to transition here and talk about nutrition a little bit. Um, so there, my understanding is there's really not a Parkinson's disease diet, but protein does impact how our medication um, is delivered or how effective it is. And I know from reading your book that you shared, you had three different things, peanut butter, turkey, and soy that impacted your medications. How did you discover that? And can you talk in general about how protein impacts uh, medication delivery? Well, the, the main medication for Parkinson's disease is L-DOPA. And L-DOPA crosses through the gut into the bloodstream and then it crosses into the blood-brain barrier um, and becomes dopamine in the brain. It's a precursor to dopamine. And so different proteins will actually block the transport of L-DOPA across the gut and also into the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, so how did you discover, was it just you noticed when you were eating peanut butter that your medication just did not seem to work as well? How did you discover that? Yeah, I noticed that, that whenever I had protein, that the medication would not work. And I was so dependent upon the medication to actually move that I was, I was desperate for the medication. So eventually I was only eating non-protein, which is very hard to do. Crackers, mm -hmm. celery. Um, it's very hard. Most things have some non-protein in them. Yeah. So I lost lots of weight. I lost like 60 pounds. Yeah, that's a, that's a real challenge. Um, I, and I assume the further you know, you go into the disease, the longer you've had it, the more challenging that is because at first, you know, the medication works so effectively for most people. And then as you, you know, have more and more off times, then I'm sure that the protein consumption becomes a bigger issue. And that kind of brings us to our segue to our next uh, question and next area I want to talk about, and that's surgical options. I know you decided to get deep brain stimulation. And I think that a lot of people living with Parkinson's are concerned about the risk factors, at least the people that I've spoken to, to include infection. And then just the thought of someone operating on your brain while you are awake is, uh, you know, it's kind of frightening. But I read that you were excited about the surgery itself and how it might impact your, your life, your quality of life. Take me through that decision and then through the, the day of surgery. Well, I've become so desperate um, for the medication to kick in and turn on that it felt so good to be on the medication that I said it's almost worth having the disease. Mm -hmm. um, for a second That's there. okay. No worries. Um, so the process... I think I, was less, I think I was less afraid to have my brain operated on by a competent neurosurgeon because I was an anesthesiologist and I, and I knew that he was competent and I had seen deep brain stimulation um, and uh, that on people that was very positive. And so, I knew that in Germany they had been doing it for 20 years and they still had effectiveness on people. Um, so I decided to, to go for it. I eventually was going to go to the Cleveland Clinic because there was a, a surgeon there named Ali Razai who had done 
over a thousand deep brain stimulations. I figured the place I'd done the most, I'd had the most experience with it, and had the least amount of complications. But then I met my surgeon, Dr. Christopher Horn, in Georgetown, and he had done 250 of them, and he was doing about two a week, and he was having very good results. And he was the nicest neurosurgeon I've ever met. So I decided to go with him. And he also, it's also important to have a good neurosurgeon neurologist combo because the neurologist actually is the one that that programmed through deep brain stimulator and programming of it and giving you options to turn it up and down is very important because if you had the deep brain stimulator and you didn't actually turn it up to its maximum amount you wouldn't be getting the benefits of it yeah so I would I would assume that if if you're going to leave your general area, whether it's because you don't have that service in your area or if you're seeking a different surgeon outside of your area, that it's important that you have a neurologist either that you can coordinate, they can coordinate the care wherever you are with wherever you went for your surgery, or that you have someone that you're able to travel back and forth for those appointments. Yeah, I think what the most important thing to do is to look look at the National Parkinson's Foundation Centers of Excellence for Deep Brain Stimulation. And they have they have centers that have a low enough complication rate, that have a high enough success rate that they can they can tell you where to, where to go. And it's called a center of excellence for deep brain stimulation. And then if you have a movement disorders neurologist at home with you that can help you to program it. The surgeon will actually place the leads and the neurologist will actually do the programming. Gotcha. So I guess the um, million dollar question is, are you glad that you had it? Yes, I'm very glad that I had it. I was desperate by the time. I remember sitting on the couch with my daughter watching Michael J. Fox being interviewed by Katie Cork. And he was very discontented. And I said, at least I'm not that bad. She says, you guys look about the same day. Because it's hard to tell how discontented you are. Right. Boy, aren't kids honest? Yes. Yes. How old was your daughter at the time? She was in fourth grade. Gotcha. So your children were little. I mean, being diagnosed at 38, I'm sure. Um, that's, you know, that's part of that young onset Parkinson's disease. Uh, difference, you know, from someone that's diagnosed later in life and early, they're still trying to make their living and they're still trying to work and rear children and the stresses of that as well. Um, I, I read something that really resonated in your book with me and you said if they could find, if they could find medications that worked without off periods, we'd consider that a cure. That really resonated with me because I feel like, you know, when your medicine works, life just goes on as normal. Yeah, it's like flipping a switch, isn't it? It is. It is indeed, yeah. So let's let's transition just a little bit to um, and talk about your retirement. Um, I know you were in a very demanding career, and I would only could only imagine that stress played a, a big role in your decision and when it was time to retire. 
Um, it's general knowledge that stress makes Parkinson's symptoms worse. So tell us what led up to the decision to actually go ahead and retire for something that you had gone to school for years and years and years for. Yeah, I was in the peak of my career. I had become ECHO certified. I was a cardiac anesthesiologist at the busiest heart center, the third busiest heart center in the country. So we were doing 3,000 hearts a year. Wow. And then one time I was putting a patient to sleep and I noticed that I was moving a little bit slower than I usually did. And I just figured that a patient, it was my duty to have a patient have a neuro-intact anesthesiologist. And so I decided to look into my disability insurance and to retire at that time. Yeah, I'm sure that must have been a really difficult decision. And, uh, but I, I want to say certainly it's a noble decision to to know when it's time to make make that hard decision. Yeah, it was a very hard decision. It was like jumping off a cliff because you don't know where you're going to land or what you're going to do every day with your life after you become a, a professional that you trained to be. Yeah, I know. You know, I, I didn't train for years and years and years to be a physician, but even leaving my career when I did and the decisions that I made when I was diagnosed, um, that it was difficult. And, you know, part of your identity is kind of tied up into what you do, whether you want, you know, people want to think about that or not. That really is kind of, um, most people are kind of have an identity tied to what they do, not just who they are. But I think that that brings us to a really good question, and I know... Um, because we climb at a at the same uh, rock climbing area, I know that you certainly have not just sat down and stopped living life just because you retired. So tell tell us a little bit what you've been doing since you um, since you retired. Well, my my boss when I retired told me that this is the time of life to do what I've always wanted to do. So I decided to learn to fly. Wow. Which I think was kind of crazy because I would never get the medical certificate to fly. So I always flew with the pilot with me. But I, I took 10 lessons and I did seven takeoffs and three landings. And now I can be that guy in the airplane when they say, does anybody know how to fly this plane? I guess I do. That's great. I love it. Um, the DBS I was able to ski again I was an, an avid mogul skier when I was younger in my 20s and I was having trouble turning to the to the left or turning to the right and I was ending up in the left side of runs with the trees going by my head I couldn't turn to the right and so I ended up skiing on the easier slopes and then when I got my DBS put in I was able to ski moguls again. Not like I was 20 again, but I was able to ski one run. And, and I you enjoyed that? I on the chairlift with me, and I said, I have to tell you, I, I can ski again. I haven't been able to ski for 20 years. Amazing. That is awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. And then take me to, to the time when you decided, you know, I think I'm just going to rock climb. I've never done that before, but... I think I'm going to. What What made you decide rock climbing was the next thing? 
Well, I had done the big and the loud therapy at Georgetown. And the big therapy, they want you to continue it after they finish with you. And it's hard to do the big therapy every day because it's so monotonous and it's kind of boring. And so I decided to look for something that I could do that was like the big therapy, which is, which is big movements over big repetitive movements. And I found the New York Trapeze School. And so I was going to go take a lesson at the New York Trapeze School. I went and did one lesson there, and I landed, and landed on the net on my chest. And it kind of grabbed my deep brain stimulator, and I realized that it wasn't probably good for my deep brain stimulator. Yeah. So I was trying to think of something else. So I, I thought of rock climbing. I had never been rock climbing before in my whole life. And I started calling around to the different rock climbing gyms and asking if I got a private license. I found Molly Donnellan, who's amazing. She is, isn't she? Yeah. Yeah, I like Molly a lot. Um, and you know, because I was reading your book, Tenacity, a memoir, um, I found, that's how I found Molly, because you mentioned that you were climbing there in Alexandria. And I reached out to her, and immediately she contacted me back and said, you know, come try it. And, and I did, and I love it. And so I go as regularly as I can. It's about an hour and, oh, 45 minutes drive, I think, for me each way. So it's a commitment on Thursdays, but I do enjoy it, and she is great. Um, so what's, what's next? What's after rock climbing? Well, I was actually also cycling. I was sitting on my couch watching the Beijing Olympics, and I was watching Taylor Finney. Um, who came in eighth that year for cycling indoors, and they had a color piece on his father, Davis Finney, who was the winningest American bike rider in the 80s. And he um, he had just gotten DBS for Parkinson's the same month I did. And so he was tiring the benefits of cycling with Parkinson's. So I went to the, the bike shop and bought a bike that day, and I was going to bike for a thousand miles in the first year. I ended up biking for three thousand miles. Wow, that's that's pretty significant. Yeah, and the Davis Finney Foundation actually called me, and because I was donating to them ten cents a mile, and they actually called me and they they wanted me to ride the Rockies. Um, they had twenty slots in Ride the Rockies, which is which is a a 700-mile bike ride in a week. Oh, man, I can't even imagine. And I said, that's crazy. I have Parkinson's disease. Can I ride 700 miles in a week? They said, don't worry, we have a lot of, the whole team has Parkinson's disease. We'll, we'll ride nice and slow. And so I showed up there. I found there was, there was two other people with Parkinson's. One of them was on a tandem bike, and one of them lived in Colorado and rode the hills every day. So I just rode with, with my friend Dan. He rode behind me, and I rode about 90 miles a day for the for the full week. Wow. How long does it take to ride 90 miles? It was, we'd leave at 6, six o'clock in the morning and come in about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. That's, it was amazing how, long, how far you can go downhill in the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. 
but the uphill must have been brutal. Yeah, you guys go uphill too, and we bike up, up to 11,000 feet, and then we bike down to 5,000 feet. I would think that the elevation would also play a factor. Yes, it definitely did. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Well, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to tell people how to get your book, Tenacity, a Memoir. Um, if someone's interested in reading your book, where would they find you? You can go on Amazon.com and you can search for John Lesson Tenacity. And that's L-E-S-S-I-N, Lesson, John Lesson. All right. All right. Well, I, I want to give you just one quick moment then, if you don't mind, to just share what your final thoughts are, the final things that you would uh, want our listening audience today to know about Parkinson's disease. Well, Parkinson's disease is more than just a tremor. It's a, it's a, a whole host of symptoms that we try to fight every day. We fight it with medication. We fight it with deep brain stimulation. We fight it with exercise. And you can actually make yourself much, much better with those things, and you can actually live life to the fullest still. Yeah, exercise has impacted me significantly. I'm so much better than I was when I was first diagnosed, for sure. And, of course, medication plays a role, but the medication allows you to exercise, and the exercise, you know, I always say you exercise today for a better tomorrow. Right. Because of COVID, I haven't been able to be at the rock climbing gym, but I'm sure I'll see you there at some point. I can't wait to climb with you, Dr. Lesson. Um, and I look forward to meeting you in person. I want to thank you um, for your time today, and I appreciate all the time and expertise that you've shared with our listeners. And uh, I also want to just thank our listening audience. We appreciate your support, and we hope that the interviews that we bring to you are informative, encouraging, and inspiring. And uh, see you Tuesday. Thank you.